Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We have been away from Acts for about two weeks or so as I did an extensive uh, series on um, and during Christmas just about uh, longing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. But now we get back into Acts chapter 24 because we left off last time at Acts chapter 23. And we're going to look at the first 23 verses uh, of this chapter. And in these verses, we're going to see Paul falsely accused. And we're going to see Paul give his offense. The title of my message you can see right up there on the screen is called False Accusations. And if you've lived for any length of time, you know what false accusations are. When people hear something about you which isn't true, and they come to believe them and accept them, and uh, embrace them, and then at some point you hear about them. And these accusations, right, come then and maybe they come back to you. Sometimes they don't come back to you. Sometimes they come back to you years later. That, oh, I thought this about you. And things that aren't even true, which are very hard to deal with. Or maybe something you did, you're, you misunderstood, were misunderstood. Someone fosters some ill feelings towards you. Things that's not even true. And, and that's, what, that's what Paul was facing here a little bit today. And when that happens to you, it hurts. It hurts deeply. The more public and prominent that you live, the, the more will be the criticisms and the misunderstandings and the accusations that come our way. In fact, entire news networks are developed, have false accusations against presidents and people of Congress, like from one side or the other. Like all these accusations are all flying, and some are true, certainly, and lots are false. And... But this is the reality of the Christian life. We'll be misunderstood. We'll be falsely accused, especially by the world who thinks we're foolish for following after Christ. And our comfort really is this, is that Jesus faced accusations. He faced false accusations. He knows our feelings and He knows the trials that come with it all. He knows the injustice that comes with it all. In fact, He knows it better than any of us here. Because we all are, are sinners and we in some degree or another deserve to die for our sin. But, but Jesus didn't sin. Of, of any one person on the planet, he did not deserve to die. But yet he was falsely accused in a kangaroo court and brought to death upon a cross. He knew far more injustice than any of us will ever know by false accusations that come our way. So I think this morning we're going to see Paul experience these sorts of sufferings that Christ experienced being falsely accused. And I think that's really the, the appropriate application for us when it comes to this text. I thought, how can we apply this text where, where Paul's basically on trial? And I thought that maybe the best way is to have you all think about when you're misunderstood and falsely accused or, or maligned for doing what is right. And just think about how you will respond. That's what Paul, Paul did. So let's read our text. Acts 24, verse 1 through 23. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you, this is saying to the governor, Felix, since through you we, have in, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness 
to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, probably pointing at him, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Just up there. Um, because there's a textual issue here, and you know it. If you look like there's a, a, a superscript, if you have the uh, ESV, and you notice it's going to jump then from verse 6 to verse 8. We're missing verse 7. I just want to comment on that just briefly. It's not going to get in the way of our exposition in any instance. But um, this is... This, this text here, verse 7, is included in some manuscripts. Of the oldest manuscripts, it's not in there. In some of the newer manuscripts, it's in there. Um, we don't really know whether Luke, the author of Acts, actually wrote those words or not. They make zero difference in terms of the interpretation of this passage. And these are the kind of passages that people who resist Christianity say, oh, the Bible's filled with errors. You say, well, where's one of them? And they won't know. Like, so if anyone ever tells you the Bible's filled with errors... Say, oh, really? Can you share with me one? They will not be able to tell you one. But these are the types of things that are, are filled with errors. Basically, is this verse in the Bible or not? And as you'll see, it makes no difference on the interpretation. And that's how all Bible variants of manuscripts that have been copied down through the ages are. They don't make any difference in the truth. They're, they're little things like this. This is one of the bigger text actually though that is uh, debated we didn't know whether it's it's in there or not it's i would just say probably not but i will read here so verse six reads like this he even tried to profane the temple but we seized him and we would have judged him according to our law but the chief captain lysias came and with a great violence took him out of our hands commanding his accusers to come before you now picking up verse eight by examining him, Felix, you yourself will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, this was his defense, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. And after several years, I, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And, and while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrong they found when I stood in the council. On this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that they should be kept in custody, but have some liberty 
and that none of his friends should be presented from attending to his needs. Well, my first point this morning really comes from verse 1. It is the assembly of the court. This is a courtroom scene that we have seen, and this is merely the assembly. The, the judge, the prosecution, the defense all gets together in one place. Felix is the judge. Um, this man, Tertullus, is the prosecuting attorney, and Paul is the one making his own defense. And we see the court assembled here in verse 1. It says, after five days, it says the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Well, this first phrase calls us actually to review because after five days means after the days, after the events of chapter 23. And since it's been almost two months since we've been in chapter 23, it would be helpful for us even to think about that. Acts 23 tells the story of Paul when he was transferred from prison in Jerusalem to prison in Caesarea. And, and then five days after that transfer, then this trial is taking place. And that begs the question, okay, so why is Paul even on trial? Well, I would just simply say, you won't understand Acts 24 unless you've kind of got an understanding a bit of the context. Um, so let's go back even to Acts chapter 21. You don't really need to go back there. You can kind of turn in your Bibles back there and kind of look to see what's going on. But Acts 21 and 22 tell about how Paul was coming into Jerusalem with a boatload of cash that was given by the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to distribute to the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering because of their poverty. And when Paul first came to Jerusalem, then he, he came to James. <clears throat> you can see that in chapter 21. He visits James, who's a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he basically says, what, what, what's the ethos in the city? What, what, what might be your counsel to me? I've got this, this cash that I need to give to the Christians and then also, I, I just want to be sensitive to the Jews and just like, what, what would you recommend I do? And James counseled him, well, you know, I think it would be best if you purify yourself and offer a vow in the temple because there's some Christians here who, hearing about your perspective of the law of Moses, are, are a little hesitant about you. And, and it would be helpful for you just to demonstrate your perspective. You're not ditching the law, right? But there are some things of the law which are appropriate for Christians to, to keep and do. And this would be helpful for your reception as Christians. And so that's what Paul did. The first week he was in Jerusalem, he purified himself, offered up a vow with other Christians in the temple. But while he was in the temple purifying himself, like after he purified himself, then some Jews saw him and they knew about Paul and they hated Paul and they began a riot. Acts chapter 21, 28. You can just look right there. It says, these men stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Forget the fact that Paul was submitting to the law right there and forget the fact that he was purified according to the law. Anyway, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Total false accusation. He did not do this. But, verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him in the temple. Not true. He would never have done that. And then all the city was stirred up, and all the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and all at once the gates were, were shut. And it's only really because of the watchful eye of the Roman guards that Paul was saved a painful death at the hand of this mob. And then chapter 22 records how Paul then tried to calm the crowds to tell them that there is nothing to what you are, are saying. And, and he gave them his testimony in a, in a few minutes. I think we have recorded here in the Scripture. It takes about three minutes to read or two and a half minutes to read. But that only caused further riots. 
If you look there in chapter 22 and verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voice, said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so Paul was brought into the jail and um, the Romans were saying, we got to figure out what's going on here. And it was only his Roman citizenship that saved him from some torture as they sought to get some truth out of him. So that was the next day that the, the Romans arranged for the Jews to convene a council that the Romans might know as verse Chapter 21, verse 30, the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. But that turned bad when Paul mentioned the resurrection. The Sadducees and Pharisees were then, then, then turned like against each other. The Pharisees started supporting Paul because they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't, and so there's this dissension then became violent. And, and so again, the Romans had to come and rescue Paul as he was brought into custody again. And then there was a plot against his life. That's the end of chapter 23. Um, when they're going to kill him, these men, remember, they took a fast. They weren't going to eat or drink anything until they'd killed Paul. And so that the, the, the Romans knew about that, and so they transferred Paul safely from um, Jerusalem to Caesarea. And now, verse 1, it's been five days since his transfer to Caesarea that the court is assembled. And so again, we read verse 1, and after five days of all these things, right, he comes into the temple, he purifies himself, right, for seven days he offers up this uh, this sacrifice, and then and then they accuse him, and then there's this riot, and the Romans save him, and they put him in the council. There's a riot, the Romans save him, the Romans save him to Caesarea, so it's right where he is. After five days, a high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So before we listen to this case, right, we need to grasp these main players. Ananias is the high priest. He's the one ultimately responsible for all the religious activities of the Jews. And it makes sense that he would make the effort to travel to Caesarea to deal with this case because the disturbance in the temple had been quite large. Like whenever you say, can I I talk to your manager? Like he was the manager, right? He was the guy. The buck stopped with Ananias, so he went to Caesarea to deal with this. And then the elders that came down with him as well were probably the elders of Jerusalem, maybe some Sadducees and maybe some Pharisees that were there as well, but maybe some of his closest cabinet members of uh, Ananias. We're not exactly sure, but that's who came. Um, and then we see this Tertullus being identified here as a spokesman. Uh, he was really the star layer, uh, lawyer. He was the Perry Mason, if you will. Or if you're my generation, he was the, the Johnny Cochran. Or if you're this generation, he was the Camille Vasquez of his day. Just the star lawyer, the, the one who's going to get it all. And maybe you've seen the billboards like this, advertising for all the millions of dollars certain lawyers won for his clients. Well, Tertullus was that guy who's going to come in in a sneaky way to do that. Well, then we see Tertullus. Um, we see the governor then, this man named Felix. He was installed in office in AD 52, appointed governor of Judea. And uh, to know a little bit about Felix, uh, you need to know that one historian, Tacitus, who lived in the several hundred years after him or, or whatever. I'm not sure when Tacitus actually was, but he was early on, very close to this time. He described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. Is who this Felix was. During his reign, there were many political uprisings, which he would put down using brutal methods. So just think about, you know, Eastern Europe, the time of communism, right? The Iron Curtain, uh, oppressing. That, that's Felix. He would be a Joseph Stalin, if you will. Um, he wasn't particularly the most impartial judge to stand before, but then the trial comes in verse 2. And when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. That is, Paul now bringing him into the courtroom. 
Tertullus then begins to accuse him, the prosecuting attorney, laying out his case. This is my second point, the prosecution. Tertullus begins by addressing the judge. He addresses Felix, the governor, in our day, right? The lawyers before the Supreme Court basically say something like, may it please the court, and they enter into their discussion. Tertullus, on the other hand, went into flattery. Listen to what he says. He says this, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You know what that's called? Called a lie is what that's called. There wasn't much peace during his days. There weren't all these good reforms that took place during his rule. And the Jews that Tertullian represented were not really grateful for all these things of his reign. As one commentator said, few would have joined in any expression of quote-unquote profound gratitude for the governor's frequent displays of ferocity, cruelty, and greed. Yet Felix loved these words. Most excellent Felix loved these words because he was a vain man. He loved the praises of men. He loved it when others spoke well of him. And Tertullus knew that. And that's why he spoke that way. And the fact that Tertullus would use such flattery gives some light on the character of Tertullus as well. Proverbs 29.28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Paul would have known that right away, and the ruin was directed right at Paul. Verse 4, he transitions from most excellent Felix now to Paul. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Basically, to Tertullus here lays out three accusations uh, against Paul. Uh, first of all, that he is a, a disturber of the peace. Second of all, that he's a leader of a false religion. And thirdly, is that he's a profaner of the temple. And, and each of these accusations are patently false. That's why I entitled my message this morning, False Accusations. Paul was not a disturber of the peace. He was not a leader of false religion. He was not a profaner of the temple, yet this is the nature of false accusations, right? False accusations are false. Now, with these accusations, as with many false accusations, there's some kernel of truth, or there's something there that extends this. Sometimes there's nothing at all, like particularly being a profaner in the temple, that's nothing at all. But a disturber of the peace, Paul's ministry was a catalyst oftentimes for public unrest. All you need to do is trace the missionary journeys of Paul, which we've done in Acts chapter 13 all the way up until uh, chapter 21 when he came into Jerusalem that finished his third missionary journey. And, and there were times that when Paul spoke the gospel, it was so hated that there were riots in the city. I'm thinking about Lystra. When they rose up and they then took him out of the city and stoned him. I, I think about Philippi where he was cast into prison and beaten in Thessalonica when, when Jason was held hostage. Jason, one of his friends, where's Paul? Where's Paul? And Jason says, well, I'll get him out of town. Or I think about Ephesus where there was a giant riot as well. 
But, but public unrest was not always the norm. Sometimes there was just hostility against Paul, just personally directed him, like he's a city in Antioch, and he was just said, just leave town. You're just done here. Just leave. So like, okay. Uh, or at Corinth, there was some persecution arising. But Paul, because he had received a word from the Lord, stayed in Corinth. But there wasn't this public uprising. And sometimes like in Athens, Athens is like our, our day and age, right? Paul comes in, the gospel comes in, it's going to be an issue, and people are like, yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll ignore him. Like he was just ignored sometimes. Um, but Tertullus calls him here in verse 5, he calls him a plague. I love how other translations uh, translate this. kind of gives you an idea. That the NIV calls him a troublemaker. The NAS calls him a pest. After the King James Version, which calls him a pestilent fellow. So, children, if you want to talk to your brother or sister in a, in a mean, sort of fun sort of way. My brother and I used to call each other uncircumcised Philistines. Um, you can call each other, you pestilent fellow, like that might be kind of a fun thing. And you that's biblical, you can say. And it's kind of kind. Or even he was called a public menace. The Amplified Bible says that. Just trying to amplify, pull out the meaning. He's this public problem. And this accusation, it's interesting, it, it comes with some bite of reality because this is the reality of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 36, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And to be sure, the gospel brings conflict. Because when some believe that you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from you do what you do, like there are others then who believe, no, no, you need to work at it, right? You need to, you need to be as nice as you can and try as hard as you can. And those two are in contradiction with each other. And the one will hate the other. Non-Christians hate Christians. The gospel brings a, a division, and there's a separation of families. And I know that some of you know that separation of families. When you come to faith and parents ostracize you. With Paul bringing the gospel to towns and cities, for the very first time, caused great division in the city. Because that's what the gospel does. And, and particularly, it's when the gospel comes the first time. The people didn't understand it, they're... They're like apprehensive about what's happening. They're, they're taking people out of the, of the Jewish synagogue and coming over there. They've caused these, these great riots. But here's the thing. Paul wasn't the one stirring up the riots. It wasn't Paul calling the Christians together. Those who believed in him, hey, let's us riot together against this. And he wasn't the one whipping the people into a frenzy. It was others who hated the message that he brought who stirred up the crowds. So, so Paul wasn't so much this past as this, this one causing the divisions, as the one that he was the the catalyst of that, um, that, that they said, no, he's the disturber of the peace. But it's really who, those who opposed him who disturbed the peace. So there's the first accusation, that Paul was a disturber of the peace. Second is he was a leader of a false religion. Tertullus called him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see right there in verse 5 towards the end. Now, for Tertullus to refer to Christianity like this was pretty derogatory. Um, we don't know exactly why Nazareth was so looked down upon, but it was. Uh, for some reason, it did not have a good reputation. Remember in the early first chapter of John, where Nathaniel is uh, called to come and follow Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. And remember his response? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, there's nothing good that comes out of that small, little, yucky town. 
So calling Paul a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes is really a derogatory reference to him. Calling this leader this religion that has no good in it at all. And calling it as a sect, right? Tertullian is merely placing Christianity outside of Judaism. Because the, the Sadducees were called a sect. And the, the Pharisees were called a sect. Like these different groups within Judaism. And they said, well, here's a, here's a sect. And he's basically pushing it outside of Judaism. Claiming it's this outside, claiming it is, it is false. That's what the prosecution says. That was the accusation, and we'll find out that it, that's not true because Christianity is true. That's why you're here today. I don't need to convince the choir of that. The third accusation, Paul was a profaner in the temple. This is flat out true. Um, Paul understood the sacredness of the temple. He would never profane the temple. As, as a Pharisee growing up, he understood the offense that would bring, what the gospel would bring, and he would never do that. He didn't do that. And that's the nature of some false accusations. Some of them are maybe have a seed of the, of the truth, a disturber of the peace. Some of them are just flat out not even close, profaner of the temple. Now, in verse 8, we see Tertullus close his case. He says, by examining him yourself, Felix, you'll be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And then we see that affirmation of the Jews who had come with Tertullus. We see that in verse 9. The Jews also, these were the elders referred uh, before in verse 1. He says, uh, the Jews who joined him, in, joined him in the charge, affirming that these things are so. They're you know, giving their amens. And yes, Tertullus, and you got it right. And they were right there affirming everything that was said. And then verse 10, we see the trial continuing on. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. So, this is simply Paul's defense. And Paul begins, like Tertullus, addressing the judge. Um, but he's shorter in his addressing him. And he doesn't flatter him at all. He just puts forth the truth. Knowing, verse 10, that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He's just simply saying, you've been ruling this nation for years. You've got some experience. And I'm glad to defend myself. And then Paul continues on, addresses these three accusations against him. First off, am I a disturber of the peace? He says this, verse 11. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. And so Paul, I mean, think about it, right? When he came to Jerusalem, he was seven days in this purification. So seven days away from everybody. He went into the temple once for the purification. That's when all hell broke loose, if you will. Like, it was all, whoa, all this stuff like that. He was a knight in jail, and then he came up, and then he was transferred to Caesarea. He counts 12 days. And he says this, basically, I'm being accused for inciting a riot in Jerusalem, but I haven't had any time to stir up a riot I went to Jerusalem to worship, spent a week purifying myself in a vow. Five days later, I was brought here. And you can see, it's just been 12 days, even since I came. I wasn't gathering up a crowd. I wasn't trying to rebel against the Jewish authorities. It wasn't even possible. It wasn't even possible. The little time that I had in Jerusalem, I am no disturber of the peace. They said, what about a leader of a false religion? To this, Paul admits following Jesus. But in doing so, he carefully points out this sect isn't out of the mainstream. It's not this new religion. Rather, it's the, the fulfillment of everything that Jews have been hoping for. Verse 14, he says, Now I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, 
I, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both toward God and man. And Paul's hope is our hope. We believe in the Jewish Scriptures. We believe in everything that Moses wrote. We believe in everything that was written in the prophets. We believe that they wrote about Jesus. Because Jesus said that. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me, John chapter 5. We believe that Jesus raised from the dead. And we believe that Jesus, he's going to come. He's alive and well, he's going to come. He's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And that's why verse 16, Paul says, it's so important for him to maintain a clear conscience before God and man because Christ's going to come back and judge him. I just simply say this, right? Is that your hope this morning? Do you hope in the Jewish scriptures? Do you hope in everything that Moses wrote? Do you hope in everything that the prophets wrote? Do you believe in everything the prophets wrote? Do you intake it and constantly say, not, not, oh, yeah, I believe it's on the shelf. No, but I believe it. Yeah, it's, it, I believe it so much, I'm trusting myself to it. I'm, I'm here all the time thinking about it. Do you believe everything written about Jesus in the, in the Gospels, that he lived a perfect life? He never sinned, not even once? That Jesus, being falsely accused by the religious leaders, was put to death on the cross? But, but his death on the cross was... Our hope, him dying in our place for our sins. Do you believe that Jesus was buried, physically dead, as a human, dead? But that he rose from the dead, that he's coming back again? Do you believe those things? I mean, we sang those things today. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life eternal. I believe like I believe in the name of, like over and over, right? I believe, I believe. Do you believe? Because you just might be singing those songs and not believe in your heart. Do you believe? Do you believe, as the New City Catechism says, which we've put before you, which I'm seeking to try to memorize this year, that your only hope in life and death is that you belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? That that's your only hope? Can you say that with a clear conscience, verse 16, before God? That your hope is in Jesus? Your, your hope is that He died for your sins? That he lived the perfect life for you. That you lived the sinful life. He lived the perfect life. But he was punished as if he lived your sinful life. And you, by faith, get to stand before God as if you lived his perfect life. So, gospel, we talked about that in prayer meeting this morning. Just Philippians 3, prompting our thoughts that we might be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. We believe and that's our righteousness. That's the gospel. Not that we're good people trying to be super nice as much as we can. We don't believe that we're righteous according to the law. We believe our righteousness comes through Christ who kept the law. So Paul said in Philippians 3, well, that's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of our church. Is it your hope? Is it your faith? It was Paul's faith. He was the leader in proclaiming this faith. But it wasn't a false religion. Okay, now regarding the third accusation, he was a profaner of the temple. Paul says, I wasn't profaning the temple. His time in the temple is one of purification. Look at verse 17. He says this. 
He says, now, after several years, that is several years apart on these missionary journeys, he says, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. They should come. Should they come and have anything against me? So you see, Paul's heart was for the Jewish people. He came to Jerusalem with money not to, to give away to Jewish people who were hurting. The Jewish people in Jerusalem who had believed and trusted in the Messiah and were facing through difficult times. And I don't know how much cash he had. I'm not sure how much money he had, but he probably had a lot. It's not like in a bank he couldn't wire it back then. It was his generosity, his heart for the poor as he affirmed to those Ephesian elders before he's coming, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And he's remembering the poor people. He came with his heart with this money. And he wasn't arousing any crowd, drawing attention to himself. In fact, he was away for seven days. And then purified himself, and he was pure in the temple. You said, well, he's a profaner of the temple. What are you talking about? I went through this purification ritual. I was pure in the temple. And then he says, right here in verse 19, he says, those who began the riot know full well what happened. They should be the ones who should be called to witness the truth of what what I'm saying is what Paul says. They're not even here. The the, the eyewitnesses aren't even here. You just brought the high priest and you brought his cronies to come with me. But but Paul doesn't close his case yet. Adding only one thing that he could be accused of, any wrongdoing at all. He says, okay, well, right, I'm I'm not a disturber of the peace. He said, I I can't have enough time in Jerusalem to have done that. I'm I'm not a leader of false religion because this is the religion that believes in everything the prophets speak about the resurrection of of Christ. I'm not a a profaner of the temple. But, okay, right, maybe there's this one thing, this true kernel to these false accusations. He says, or else, let these men say, let these men here of the council, because those are the council who came, right? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Let these elders who you've brought with you, Mr. Ananias, high priest, let these guys say, what, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before this council. Other than this one thing, this was recorded in Acts chapter 23, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. And remember, that's how it caused all the tumult because then the, the Pharisees are like, oh, he believes in the resurrection. We believe. Oh, maybe Paul's speaking the truth. Maybe a spirit appeared to him or an angel, right? Remember the Sadducees didn't believe in those things? They say, no, no, there's no spirit, no angel, no skin. And, and those are causes of confusion. So Paul says, okay, am I a disturber of the peace? I just said, I believe in Moses and the resurrection of the dead. That's what I'm on trial here before. And I love how Paul, in his defense, makes the gospel clear about the resurrection of Jesus being risen from the dead. And I love how we, we focused on that in our songs, about the resurrection of Christ over and over and over again. In his defense, Paul's simply making this the issue, the gospel the issue, the resurrection of Jesus the issue. And I think Paul's masterful in his defense, right? Denying all the fact, accusations with facts. And then putting forth the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that his raising from the dead is our hope past this little vapor of a life that we have. It's like smoke that just vanishes away. You kids, maybe you think that, whatever, 70 years is a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that 55 years, I had to think about that, 55 years is not a long time. I remember like yesterday, I was just like you, Thatcher, sitting in the pew. We had pews in the church I grew up in. Thank you. 
It's going to go like that. Where's your, where's your hope? It's the gospels that, that Jesus died and he rose again. Therefore, we can have hope to rise again and live with Christ eternally if we but believe in him and, and forsake our works, right? Repent and trust in him. Don't trust in our works. Take refuge in him. And I just think that, right, bringing things to application, right, whenever we're falsely accused or, or misunderstood, but let's just bring facts, but let's bring the gospel. Confessing our sin because we're forgiven by faith in Christ. Or, or maybe right, falsely accused by, by non-Christians, but push the gospel there. I'm, I'm being true in my conscience with what I believe is right, that Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to be following after him. You can believe me as a fool. You can think I'm a fool. I'm not. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Press the gospel upon them. Maybe they'll come to Christ as well. Well, finally, we get to the verdict. Verses 22 and 23. We've seen this whole trial, right? The court assembled. The prosecutors brought their case. Paul defended his case. And now Felix, as the judge, brings his verdict. Here it is. Verse 22. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and we'll talk about that next week, why he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. In other words, right, he discerned what's going on here. He put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to Centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. In other words, right, his decision was no decision. We'll just put this off. Let's adjourn till Lysias, the tribune, comes. And Lysias, if you remember, right, he was the Roman soldier who was in charge of keeping the peace over the, the temple grounds. And he was right in the thick of everything that happened in the temple when the riot came. Like, he personally was down there. He came and he had the authority to, to have Paul taken into custody. He had the authority to let him speak. He had the authority to convene this council, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I think that's who Paul was talking about in verse 19 and 20, where where he's saying, let those who actually witnessed these things against me, let, let them come to charge me. And so Felix said, okay, well, let's, let's wait till they come. But until then, you're still in prison. Here's the thing. Lysias never came. So, Paul was in prison for the remaining two years of Felix's rule and reign in Judea. When, Jude, when uh, he left office two years later, he still kept Paul in prison because he understood it was a political thing. If he released Paul, the Jews would be angry with him. But he knew that Paul wasn't guilty because he had more accurate knowledge of the way, and so he, he, he couldn't release him. So he was kind of like stuck. And so he just put things off. Even though he's being falsely accused, I think uh, Felix knew he was being falsely accused. He just said, well, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just adjourn. We'll just wait until Lysias comes. Well, the title of my message is False Accusations. And in my experience of life, this is often how it ends. Sometimes you have a misunderstanding of something you've done and you explain yourself and you think their time has been clear. You put forth the truth only to realize two months later that it's not resolved, like you didn't convince them of what was actually true or not. People not convinced, they don't believe what you said. Still that problem, it's a misunderstanding just the messiness of life. And um, I've had many instances of talking to people, trying to explain myself, and then just lingers, and it's never resolved. And I thought even about Paul here, right? This verdict, what's the verdict? It's not resolved. 
And how many things in life are like that for us as well? But we can be assured of this, though. We can be assured that God's going to sustain us and keep us and protect us even in the midst of that. I'm memorizing Psalm 37 right now. And uh, Psalm 37 is a very proverbial psalm. It just speaks about just the shortness of the wicked, God's justification of the righteous. He's just going to help. And in Psalm 37, verse 32, it says, um, The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. And verse 33 says, But the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. That's exactly what's happening. Psalm 37, verse 2, the the wicked were watching. They wanted to put Paul to death because they hated that righteous man. But God wasn't going to abandon Paul. He wasn't going to let him be condemned when he's brought to trial. God was, was right there with Paul. And the Lord will sustain us as well if we just put our refuge and our trust in him. Well, next week we're going to look at Felix when Paul comes in verse 25 and reasons with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgments. Paul's message to Felix, righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment. And Felix, an unbeliever, love to hear it. Come back next week, we'll hear it. Let's pray. Father, I, I do thank you for this text and just how over and over again the righteous are vindicated God, we ought not fret not, says Psalm 37 says, fret not because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. But trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Him. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. It tends only to evil. God, I pray that when we face false accusations or misunderstandings against us, that we might not fret. But we might just trust ourselves to You. God, who will protect and, and guard the righteous, those who take refuge in You, who put their trust in You. And even Paul here is an example of one who just spoke the truth and trusted in you and yet was imprisoned for two more years. I think as I've been reading through the scriptures and just even right now in, in the story of Joseph. And Joseph was wrongly accused when he resisted Potiphar's wife and he spent some years in prison. And yet you were with Joseph. And you were with Daniel in the lion's den. And you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you were with the apostles that even though beaten, they counted it joy and went on their way rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to suffer shame for the name of christ i pray that we might see that even when people misunderstand us and there's false accusations we can trust in you that one day oh god you will make all things right and and in this fuzzy in between time when there's no no resolution i pray that we would not fret god but we would entrust ourselves to you who judge righteously in all things so help us god apply this text deep into our hearts we pray in christ's name Amen.